Um, we got a lot. Whew, we got a lot to cover this morning. I don't know what the Lord's going to have to work a miracle here. So um, every Sunday He has to work a miracle. Amen. Right. So I'm going to pray. We're going to be in First Corinthians chapter three. We're going to be at the last part of chapter three, verses sixteen through twenty-three. Uh, I need to, I need to pray, and uh, and then and then we will get going here. Um, God, you are so good to us. Your word is so good for us. We need it. May we be a church that builds, like we talked about last week, with gold and silver and precious stones. May we be a church that builds with your word and builds with the gospel on the foundation of Christ. Would you challenge us today with your word? Um, and would you work in our hearts to transform us by your spirit? It is in the mighty name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. I really, I, I just got to be honest with you. I wrestled all week with this text. How do I organize it? How do I put it together? And I just, I have something that I think I want to say just for two minutes here, okay? I think it would, I think it would be, uh, we would not be doing a good job as a church if we did not at least bring up what happened uh, on Monday uh, with the, uh, the shooting in Nashville at the Christian school. And the reason why... I, I, have, I think that it's important to bring it up is because if you remember last week, I said something to you. I said that this is not a game. This is, this is serious. Um, this is real spiritual warfare that is, that is no longer hiding. It is, it, is, it is in plain sight. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, a, a girl... Let's be clear. A girl went mentally ill at least, demon-possessed more likely, went into a Christian school and murdered six people, three children, eight, ages eight and nine, and, and older, three older people that were teachers there. And the reason why I think it's important to, to bring this up is because People are going to talk about gun control, and they're going to talk about this, and they're going to talk about that, and those are all a distraction. We talked about distractions last week as well. Those things, that's a distraction from what's actually happening, which is in every area of the public square, God has been removed completely. That's what's going on. And... And in my opinion, I think that the demonic, which is real, by the way, I know, I know as a Reformed church, we kind of don't like to talk about that, right? We're more Reformed people, than, oh, which, which, but the demonic things and Satan are real. We have to admit that. We have to know that. If we don't know that, we're, we're in deep trouble. The, I, I, I believe that the, that the, the, the ante has been upped. 
and, and it, is, it is coming out in plain sight. That is what happens there. It's coming to a Christian school near you because, because they hate God. The culture hates God and the culture has intentionally purposefully removed God from schools, from higher learning, from government. God has been removed from all of that. It's all pagan now. And we, we who have eyes to see, we have, we have the only thing that is the remedy. Jesus is the only answer. Why have we ceded all of this ground to the demonic, to our opponents? We can no longer cede any more ground. We, we have to take the gospel. That, why do you think we want to plant more churches? Because other cities, man, we want to take cities for Jesus. That's the only hope that we have. If you want to talk more to me about more, I have, I have a thousand thoughts about the situation. If you want to have a more deeper conversation with me, come up, talk to me afterward. I, I got, I, I, we got a lot to cover in a, in a short amount of time here, so we got a boogie. I can't, can't talk about that anymore. But I just wanted to bring that up because we need to know what's really happening right now. We have to know. We can, we can pretend it doesn't exist, and that's why we are where we are, is because we've pretended that it hasn't been happening for a long time now. I've never cried preaching a sermon before, so I'm trying not to right now. Brent does, but it means. He's, he's, he's a baby, so <laughs> he's not here either, so <laughs> okay. What I see in the text, remember, this church is a divided church, and they're divided based on worldly wisdom, right? They've, they've brought something into the church to try and build on the foundation of the gospel and on the word. They, they've come in, if you remember from last week, and they've tried to build a whole new foundation, right? They're doing a whole other thing. They're, they're doing their whole other, whole other thing. So, so I believe Paul, in this text, he gives, he gives three characteristics that the church should have in order to not be divided, okay? Three characteristics, in the text that would allow this church to be unified and not divided any longer. And any church, our church, any church. And I believe there are three, there are two warnings that he gives the church and then there's a promise at the end. So we have three characteristics, two warnings, and a promise. That's the way I've divided the text up this morning. Hopefully you can follow this. Who knows if I'm even gonna be able to follow it. Okay, number one. Number one characteristic that Paul mentions in the text for the church to be unified and not divided is, it, is verse 16. Look at the beginning of verse It's knowledge. The church should have knowledge. 
Knowledge that, that we all agree on that unifies us rather than dividing. It's not a worldly knowledge, it's a biblical knowledge. That's what should unite us, okay? So number one characteristic of a church not divided is knowledge. Look at verse 16. Paul says this, do you not, what? Know. There's, there's something that the church needs to know. And implied in that is what? They should already know, right? The implication, the implications, do, do you not know? The tone is, hey man, you guys should know, right? You should know, what, what should they know? Read the, let's read the verse, rest of 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you. So let's deal with those one at a time. Knowledge. They should have knowledge that they are God's temple. You see, this, this, these church, they're, they're a pagan culture. So they, they, they know what, they understand the concept of what a temple is. They have multiple pagan deities, temples in Corinth, okay? And then remember, Paul was with them for 18 months. Well, months, what was he teaching them? He was probably teaching them the, the Old Testament, which, what do we see in the Old Testament? Temples, right? So in order, in order to answer this for us today, having a knowledge of us, the church, being God's temple, we need to know a couple of things. We need to know we need to have a knowledge of God, number one, and we need to have a knowledge of what the temple is, okay? So we're gonna, ha- we're gonna do a little heavy lifting here on the front end of this thing, okay? We're gonna go back to the Old Testament and walk through. Okay, so bear with me, we're gonna get there, okay? Be, be, be patient with me here, okay? So we need, to, we need to have a knowledge of God. In order to understand what Paul is saying that the church is God's temple, we need to have a knowledge of God. So... Who is God? Well, God is a trinity. God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but one nature. They share one essence, one nature. So it's one God, three distinct persons. You can go look for the word trinity in the Bible. It ain't there, okay? But the concept, the doctrine is there. We see it in the first three verses of the Bible, right? God, in the beginning, God created. The Spirit was hovering over the waters. How did God create? He spoke. He created through the Word. That's John 1, 1, 1, 3, about, okay? All three persons of the Trinity were in the first three verses of the Bible, okay? So we know that God is a trinity. We we see it in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. When he creates man, he says, let us make man in our image, right? By the way, God is the only one who can have us and our pronouns, okay? (laughs) Deuteronomy 6, 4. Deuteronomy 6, 4, right, 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So at at one time, he's distinct from God, but he is God, the Word is, right? We're seeing this, right? We're We're seeing this, okay? 
John 17, 11, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Right? So, why? you're like, what are we doing here? Well, here's the reason why we're doing this. Understand, God is a community unto himself. God is a relational, communal being. And that's going to help us understand how the church can be where he dwells. And that's going to connect us to what the temple is, right? Because God is a... When he created man, he created man to be in relationship with him. He created mankind to... Walk in, walk in the cool of the day in the garden with Adam and Eve. He created them to have a relationship, a communal relationship with them because God is a communal and relational God in and of himself, which is incredible. Right? That's, why, that's why we're relational beings because we're made in his image and his likeness. So, so that's our knowledge that we have to understand of, of who God is. Now we need to talk about the temple, okay? Well, if God is a relational being and he created man to be in relationship with him, what is the temple? Well, the temple is the place that God dwells among his people, right? God's design was always to dwell with his people, always. And we see that in Eden. Eden was... We can debate this. If you, we can come talk to me after if you want to debate this too. Eden was the first temple, right? Eden, Eden is a temple. It is where God initially dwelled with his with Adam and Eve. Adam was the first priest. He he was told to work and keep the garden. You know what those two, those two words, work and keep? Later on, if you go to the book of Numbers, the Levitical priest who is taking care of the temple, those are the words that are used to describe him, right? Adam was the first priest. The temple was the first, the garden was the first temple. It's where, the temple is where God dwells among his people. Exodus chapter 40, we just went through that last year. Exodus 40, that's where, where Moses oversees the building of the tabernacle, right? Where the, the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant are in the Holy of Holies. What, what is that? That's where God is dwelling with his people. He always intended to dwell with his people. First Kings, Solomon builds a physical stationary temple. Massive thing, right? Ezra. Ezra chapter 5, they come back, Zerubbabel, they rebuild the temple after the Babylonian exile. Zechariah ch chapter 2, you can see all of the, why, why, why are we talking about this? Well, we want to show that God is a God of community, and he has always intended to dwell among his people. And the temple is where he did that. Second reason why we're doing this This points us to something and someone greater than a building. You see, at a time in history, God would once again come and tabernacle among his people. But instead of doing it in a building, in a structure, he did it in human flesh. 
human, human flesh became where God tabernacled. John 1.14, the word became flesh. I don't know what flesh is. I need some water, I guess. Flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is tabernacle. The, God became a human and ta- he came in a human tabernacle. Right? Jesus, Jesus even said later on, he said, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it again. What was he referring to? His body. Right? We're getting there. We're really close. And what Jesus was, when, right, he, he tabernacled as a human, living a perfect life we couldn't live, dying on a cross for your sin and for my sin. And he rose, conquering sin and death. And then when he rose, 50 days later, he ascended. And then he did what? He sent the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus was no longer physically on the earth anymore. But guess what? God still dwells with his people. How does he dwell with his people now? He dwells with his people through the Holy Spirit. God, Jesus sent the Spirit after he ascended, right? Peter preached the, the, the sermon at Pentecost from the book of Joel, where he quotes the book of Joel that says, the Spirit will come on all flesh, and you will prophesy and see visions, and, right? The Holy Spirit. Now, God dwells still among his people through the Holy Spirit. What an amazing thing that is. Look look at the end of verse 16. That God's spirit dwells in you. Guess what? Church, we're the tabernacle now. We are the temple. We are the mercy seat. We are the ark of the covenant now. God dwells in us. By the way, in verse 16 and 17, he uses the word you Four times. Every one of those times, it's, refer- it's a plural. So he's referring to the church. He's not, go to, go to, ch- chapter, one, go to chapter six of 1 Corinthians, and he refers to each individual as a temple of the Holy Spirit. So that is true too. But here he's referring to the church as where the Holy Spirit dwells. God now tabernacles in us. That is, that's incredible. That's incredible. I hope that work about the temple and doing all that was worth it because I used a lot of time to do it. So, everybody, we good? Everybody, everybody with? Everybody trekking how we got to that point? It's beautiful. So, in verse 17, we see the first warning. So, first characteristic of a church that's not divided is we have to have a knowledge of God, a common knowledge of God. And, 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 and how he dwells in tabernacles with us now. The first warning, 17, first half of the verse. Look what it says. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God takes where he dwells very seriously. And both of those words, those verbs destroy, they're, in, they're, they're ongoing, so the, the verse, the, that part of the verse should actually read like this. Anyone who is destroying the church, God will be destroying them. That's how it should be read. 
And we spoke about this verse last week. Remember, remember the works were tested by fire and there were three possible outcomes. There was the reward, there was just salvation and all their works burned up, but then there's the one who is destroyed. But here's what we didn't talk about. I wanna give three examples here. We didn't talk specifically about what it looks like to be destroying the church. And there are three, three ways, at least that we're just gonna talk about today. We could do more. Three ways that someone could be destroying the church. Number one, it could be physically. Right? That's what we saw on Monday. We saw someone who the church would not affirm her mental disorder, okay? And what, 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 what did she do? Well, she, obviously she wants to be God because she said God didn't get her gender right on the first try, so, so, so she wants to be God, and now she's gonna decide who gets to live and die because of it, right? That's an attack. That, that's, what, that's what it could look like to be destroying the church, people physically attacking the church. It's been like that for 2,000 years. We should not be surprised. People have tried to, people have tried to wipe Christianity out since it began, Nero lit folks on fire and stuck them, stuck them on spikes in his garden. And that, that was just in the first century. Right? We shouldn't be surprised. Second way someone could be destroying the church, false doctrine. All right? False, false teaching. The Corinthians were definitely dealing with false teaching as well. We know that because Paul spends a whole chapter in chapter 15 talking about the resurrection. So, so apparently they had like a faulty understanding theologically of the resurrection. We know they had a bad understanding of what, of what the Lord's Supper was because people were getting hammered on the, drunk, on the, on the, on the communion wine, all right? So they, they definitely had some, some wrong, false teaching that, that they needed to deal with. But that's a way that someone can be destroying the church is through false teaching. And there's a third way, morally. Permitting sin in the church. And we'll, we'll talk about holiness in just a minute. But permitting sin in the church that's, that's a way to destroy the church. If, 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 if our elders just turned a blind eye to sin going on in the church, that's gonna, be become, that's gonna become like a little leaven. And that's gonna, that we, right? What does Paul say? What does Paul say to the dude who's sleeping with his mother-in-law? Get him out of there. We can't allow that in the church. Guys, in the church, suing one another. Can't, that, that, doesn't sow, that doesn't sow unity. That sows discord. And that sows division. So there are multiple ways that we can be hurting the church, destroying the church. So, characteristic number two. That was warning number one, characteristic number two. The church will not be divided, will be unified if the church as a whole is pursuing holiness. Look at the end of chapter, of verse 17. It says this, God's temple is 
holy and you are that temple. The church is set apart. Literally, the Greek word for church in the New Testament is ekklesia. It means the called out ones. Called out from what? We're called out from the world. We shouldn't look like the, we should not look like the world. If a church looks like the world, they're probably not pursuing holiness. They're, and, and, and let me just say this, God's spirit ain't there. Why, why, would, why would Christians ever add carnal, fleshly things to the, to the, to the purity of the church? That's, that's what the Corinthians have done. Listen, the church has been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Why would we, why would we want to add anything of the world to that? Why would we want to permit anything into the church that would threaten that? Notice in verse 16, the knowledge that, that, that is required to be unified, it doesn't just stay as knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. The knowledge leads to a particular way of living. Right? Right beliefs should always lead to right practices. Orthodoxy always should lead to orthopraxy, always. And it's, and it's a formula right here that Paul's given to the, the Corinthians. Hey, man, you gotta have this knowledge, but the knowledge can't end there. It should result in you being a holy temple, purified by the blood of Christ. Leviticus 11.44, be holy for I'm, I, I am holy. 1 Peter 1.16, be holy, for I am holy. Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord apart from holiness. And God will not be mocked. All of the temples that we talked about, Eden, the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, the second temple. Any of those things still around? God put Adam and Eve outside the temple. They sinned in the temple and God said, he cursed it. He cursed it. What, What happened to Solomon's temple? They're kings that were sacrificing to false gods in the temple of Yahweh. Literally sacrificing animals in Yahweh's temple. What happened? God called, God called Babylon. Hey, y'all come on down here. Destroyed it. God takes his dwelling place very seriously. What, what happened to the temple in the first century? Well, first of all, Jesus fulfilled it, so we don't need that anymore. But also, remember, they were, they, the, the Jews made it a den of robbers. They were mocking the temple for gain. God will not have his dwelling place be have crickets. 
So, knowledge, holiness, two things that will unify and not divide the church. And we, have our, we had our first warning. Third characteristic of a church that is unified and not divided. Humility. We must be humble. The Greek word is tapainafrasune. I just want to say that. <laughs> Lowliness of mind is what it means. Look at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. What is the opposite of lowliness, lowly of mind? Elevated, right? High view of yourself. It's pride. The person, these Corinthians, who think that they have it figured out, who think that they can add to the gospel, who think that they can add to God's word, guess what? They, all they've done is lie to themselves. They're self-deceived. They gaslit themselves, right? That's what's happened. We never, we never graduate. I said it last week. We never graduate from God's word. We can't. We, we never graduate from the gospel. Never. We'll try it. Here we go. Romans chapter one. What happens to a self-deceived person if they do not humble themselves? Romans chapter one, starting in verse 22. This is what happens to a self-deceived person who thinks that they are much better and wiser than they actually are. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, creator who is blessed forever, amen. What happens, when, what happens when someone's worldly wisdom, their self-deception of, their, of how great they are, what happens if that goes unchecked? Idolatry happens. They idolize themselves. They, are, they consider themselves to be God. That's the problem with the culture that we're in right now. Everybody, all, all these kids are being told, you can be your own God. You don't like the way this, this, God did this or has, well then you just take over. He clearly got it wrong. You just take over and you be God. It's go, that's what happened in the garden, by the way. It's not, that's, that's an old trick that we fell for for a long time ago. It's the same. Nothing new under the sun. God's holding back on you. Did he really say? He knows you'll be like him. Satan's a liar from the beginning, a murderer. We see it, see it all around. 
How does this person who is self-deceived, how do they humble themselves? Are they hopeless? No. But, but how, do, how, do they, how do they become humble, appropriately humble? They, look, they have to look to the cross of Christ. That's how we, that's how we are humbled. We, we, we look to that. Look at, look at verse 18. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Right, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We need, to become, we need to become fools in order to become wise? Yeah, well, remember what is foolishness. Remember what God's foolishness is from chapter one. What is God's foolishness from chapter one? Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Here it is. The word of the cross, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do we need to be changed? Do we need to be humbled? Yes, we do. What do we do? How do we do that? We look to the cross. Probably don't have time to do this, but we're gonna do it anyways. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's our example of humility right there. If we need to be humbled, if we are self-deceived, we have to look to the cross of Christ. He was God and became flesh and was murdered by lawless, evil men, the only man ever to walk this earth that did not deserve death. He humbled himself. He is our example of humility, we must look to him and be reminded. So, knowledge, holiness, humility. Those are our three characteristics of a church that, should be, that will be unified and not divided. If you have those three characteristics going for you, you're on your way, you're doing good. Why is this important? Why is it important for, why is it necessary for the church to remain humble? Because of what worldly wisdom tells us. What does the world tell us? The world tell. I, and listen, I, I used to teach. I used to teach seventh graders for six years and coach football for nine years, and so I used to know all the like new terminology and like that's cap and all whatever else you know. I used to I used to know all of that. I don't know any of it anymore because I haven't been in that world. Okay, so these phrases that I'm about to give you they're probably old and outdated, but you know just get over it. <laughs> Worldly wisdom teaches you do you, 
right? Worldly wisdom is not humble. Worldly wisdom builds up the person. It says, you're great. You're awesome. Be your authentic self. Man, I, you, guys, you guys wouldn't sit in a room with me for three minutes if, you, if I was my authentic self. <laughs> Apart from Christ. Live your best life now. This is, this is it. Go out there, grab life by the horns, make a lot of money, retire. John Piper has a great thing it's called about seashells where he talks about just everybody's running toward trying to retire. Why? Because you're supposed to just live your best life now and, you know, have real nice teeth. Right? You're perfect and great just the way you are. Man, that sounds so good, doesn't it? That's demonic. That's satanic language. That's what Satan wants us to think about ourselves. We, we need Jesus, every one of us. You can do anything you want to. It's a lie. We're telling dudes they can have babies. Like, what? You, you can't do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> you just, that doesn't work. I think Brent said it a couple weeks ago. Like, it doesn't work, right? <laughs> Listen, I, the truth of the matter is, I'm, I'm, I was never going to play in the NBA. I'm a five, you know, <laughs> I'm not playing in the NBA. If somebody, that's a lie. But, but the world builds up the person. That's what worldly wisdom does. It tells us how awesome we are and how great we are and that we're somehow in this neutral place with God. Or you can kind of, you know, you can have a little Jesus if you want to and still, no, there is no neutrality. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. That's it. Worldly wisdom says, oh, you're, you know, you can just kind of do your own thing and God will maybe at the end of the day show you a little grace or mercy. Look at the end of verse 19. The wisdom of the world is folly with God. God does not deal in worldly wisdom. We have, we have all the wisdom that we need right here. And if we try to add to it, we're creating something totally different, just like the Corinthians are doing. They, they've created their own, own thing. Second promise. So we've got all three of our characteristics. Here's our second, our second warning. Verse 19c. Very end of 19. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. The warning here is God will always show and prove that worldly wisdom is completely and utterly useless. 
So if, if we're building with worldly wisdom at the end of the day, that's wood, hay, straw, man, and it's gonna get burned up. We talked about it last week. If we're building with worldly wisdom on the foundation of Christ, we're creating something totally different. It's not Christianity, and at the end of the day, that's gonna be burned up because we have not built with the proper materials. God will show it. Right? If you, I don't have, I'm not gonna go through. The, he quotes two he quotes two verses from the Old Testament. He, co- he quotes Job 5.13, and he quotes Psalm 94.11. If you want to jot those down, go look at them later. Okay? Those are the two Old Testament texts he quoted right there. Look at verse 21. So let no one boast in Men, listen, let's, I just want to make the only thing that we brought to our salvation is the sin. That's all we contribute. And, and God's design for that is so that no one would be able to stand before him and boast about anything because God did it from start to finish. Before the world ever began, God chose for himself a people. And then he accomplished salvation through, the, through his son, humbling himself, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death. We didn't, what did, what did we do? What did we do? We didn't do any of that. Go to Romans 8, 28, the end of Romans 8 there. The, the golden chain, right? Right? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he justified, glorified. We didn't do any of that. We don't do any of that. We contribute nothing but sin to our salvation. So that no one will be able to boast. Look at chapter 1, verses 28 through, 28 through 31. It should be on the board. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that in the presence, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of who? Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because you decided to follow Jesus. You're in Christ Jesus because God put you there who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now here's a promise. So we have two warnings. Let's get to the good stuff here. This is incredible. This is, I wrestled with this all week. This is incredible. I just want to read all of verse 21 through 23. Let's read it all together. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. What a promise that is to the church. He's speaking about the church. Everything is, 
Everything is ours. Why? Because we are Christ's. It's not ours because we did something to earn it. It's ours because God has united us in Christ. And in Christ, all the benefits that Christ purchased with his finished work flow to us because of our union with him, which God, we just read, which God did. So let's take these. We're, we're doing all right. Not, not really. <laughs> Verse 20, 20, Paul. Look what he says. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, all are yours. Listen, church, why, are you, why do you want to follow one or the other? You have all three of them. They're all for you. Why are you picking one guy or one, this guy? Why are you doing that? You're robbing yourself. People, maybe, maybe a lot of you don't like my preaching style. That's okay. Maybe you love Brent, you love Scott, you love Jeremy, you love Dane. That's Okay. But guess what? We're all yours. You get all of us. For better or worse, I don't know. I mean, what? <laughs> right. Right. why would you pick one or the other? We all have different strengths. We all have different gifts. Sure, you may have a preference, but we're all yours. You're robbing yourself if you pick one, this guy or that guy. You're, you're short, shortchanging yourself. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Just look up a little bit. It says this. What is Apollos? What is Paul? We're servants. They're servants. What is Brent? What am I? What is Jim? We're servants. I was talking to Scotty just a little while ago about this. The word literally, MacArthur, MacArthur says that literally the closest English we could get to this word would be like a, like a bus boy. That's what we are. Brent, Brent's no more important than Leanne Knapp holding babies. I, we're no more, we're servants. Why are you going to boast in men? They're just servants. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us, right? Remember, there are no chapter and verse breaks in the, in the original, right? So this is a flow from just what we just read. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We should be, all of us should be regarded as servants of Christ. Why are you going to follow one when you get all of them? They're all yours. Move quick here. Second set. Word, world, life, and death. All are yours. The world is yours. Life is yours. Death is yours. You're like, man, you've been, you, you started off talking about demonic possession today. Like, how, how is the world ours? Hey, people have been trying to squash the church since its inception. We're still here. Jesus is still building his church. Guess what? Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, he said, guess what? All 
authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Why? Why? Because Jesus is, Jesus is king of kings. That's why. Doesn't, doesn't, matter, doesn't matter what the demons are doing. It doesn't matter what Satan is doing. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Life. This is a charge. I want to charge you here. Piper wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. It's good. Other, other places in Paul's writing, he talks about being poured out. Right? This, this life right now, it's the church's. It's the church's life. Therefore, I want to be like Romans 12.1. I want my life, I want to present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And that will be my act of worship. That's what I want. That's what I want on my tombstone one day. I want Romans 12.1. That's what I did. That's what we did. We fought the fight. This is, this is our life. This is the church's life. This, we're in the church age. Salvation is still possible right now. When Jesus returns, it will be no more. Now, death. Death, what an incredible thing. Paul, and Paul later in the letter, he will say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Guess what? It's gone. For the Christian Death's power is gone. John Owen wrote a book called The Death of Death on the Cross. Read it. It's incredible. Death is an entryway for the believer into the eternal glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to be with him Death is not something that has any power over us any longer. It's death. Death has been killed for the believer. Present, future. God's spirit dwells in the church now. We have God dwelling in us individually and corporately right now now is the time we, we we studied we studied the book of esther for such a time as this brent and i have this conversation all the time i'm so excited to be alive right now i can't i can't wait to see what the lord is going to do through faithful gospel preaching churches he is going I know what he's going to do he's going to build his kingdom I can't wait what a time to be alive future present future not only is our eternal future security secu secured right our, our eternity is secured but that should do something to us in the here and now knowing that Knowing that we are eternally secure 
should cause us to be bold now. We, we just said we don't have to fear death. Well, let's rock and roll then, right? What? Well, I'm ready to go. We should all be ready to go. The future is secure, so the time is now. Let's go, man. Christians of all... Of every person on the face of the earth, Christians should have the least fear of man. And every one of these things are true because we are Christ's. We are in Christ. That's the end of verse 23. We are Christ, and Christ is God's. From eternity past, the Son, the eternal Son, the eternal Word. He has always been the Messiah. In the eternal covenant of redemption. If you need to know what that is, you talk to me later. Eternal covenant of redemption. It, God had a perfect plan to purchase a people for himself and the one that was decided that would purchase his people was the Son. And he came and he accomplished it. All that he was sent to do. I, wanted, I literally wanted to read the whole chapter of John 17, but we're already three minutes over, so we don't really have time to do that. I don't know. Go, please, go read the, the entire chapter of John 17. Jesus is praying, speaking directly to the Father. It's incredible. This morning, I would, I would challenge you this morning, if you have not trusted in Christ this morning, come to him. All of those things that we talked about, they will be yours because you would be Christ's. So trust in Jesus this morning. Believer, this morning, we have, we have action. We have work to do. But our victory is guaranteed. And that's the beautiful thing. So let us go forward today knowing, being bold, and knowing that the victory has already been won. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. We don't deserve anything, Lord, that you have given to us, that you have granted to us. I pray for every soul in this room that would walk forth from this place today with a renewed zeal for the gospel, for seeing lives, for seeing, for seeing transformation because of the proclamation of the gospel. And may, may we preach the gospel to ourselves each day as well so that we know that we are secure and that we are Christ's and that Christ is God's. In Jesus' name, amen.